Hi Slip Angle listeners, this is Rob from Fields Auto Works and Fields Engineering. We're really excited to be supporting great content on Slip Angle, and we hope you'll find your way over to our social media pages to see some of the exciting work that we're doing. Fields Auto Works has Cardinal Coupes being delivered and Scioto Coupes in build for testing this summer, with more exciting models on the near horizon. If you're ready for supercar performance for under $70,000 or professional prototype speed for under $150,000, stop by FieldsAutoWorks.com to see what we offer. At Fields Engineering, we have openings for major builds, arrive and drive customers, and medium to large engineering projects. We have capabilities ranging from whole composite body scratch builds to 3D scanning and printing to trackside support. We're also thrilled to be supporting regular guy racing with Colton Wade driving in GLTC and the exciting new Future Frontrunners initiative to promote women in club racing. As a Fields customer, you get the combined experience of IndyCar builders, IMSA veterans, aerospace engineers, and lifetime racers working on your next big endeavor. If that sounds like a team you're interested in working with every day, you can also contact us about our open shop positions. Find Fields Auto Works on social media and at fieldsautoworks.com, and find Fields Engineering on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the Slip Angle Show. We're at Pikes Peak International Raceway, and I've got Robert Thorne, uh, pro drifter, and... Oh, my uh, God. We're going to lead right with that. pro <laughs> And Mike Dussold, Pikes Peak International Hill Climber, Optima Ultimate Street Car Champion. All we've around got a, badass. We've got a topic right. of discussion, but we'll get to it in a minute. How are you guys doing at Pikes Peak here this weekend? Heated battle right now. Heated battle, even though it's probably over because of the weather. <laughs> well, we're racing each other, which is cool. We don't yep. race each other very often, and yep. it's it's kind of fun. And he's in his super cool Porsche GT2 Club super Sport. Stock. It's the most stock car here against the most modified car. It here. came with a roll cage, Robert. You're telling us this thing is so stock, like we should feel sorry for you. And it's a GT2 Club Sport. Like Porsche spent millions of dollars yes. developing this thing into a race car, and Robert's over there, like, ho ho, it's a stock car. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> the aircon works great. It's got a backup camera. Hey, it's got a Motec backup camera. <laughs> Backup cameras are cool. Yeah. I will tell you, I do not have a backup camera. Uh, or aircon. No aircon? No aircon. Damn. My car's fat enough as it is. I was at a solid 72 earlier, but I might have kicked down 71 next session. All right. You know, it's uh, On the internal temp, is that Yeah, on the internal temp. Yeah. Given the temperature right now, that'd be turning the heat on. Yeah, the heat was on for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you would need the heat on. It's cold. I think it's in the mid-50s right and, now here. And yesterday was warm. It was warm and sunny yep. and now cold and rainy. It's been a kind of a crazy and weather yeah. weekend. You set your fastest lap during the hottest, hardest session, I feel like, of the week. That was my slowest session. It was the one you were the fastest in. Well, it's because I actually put tires on that didn't have 15 heat cycles. So it was kind weather, of one of those I should have known better and I didn't. And I don't think either I, of you went out at the, in the open session, which was sessions one and two today. Session one was wet. By the end of two, 
track was perfect. And like right, several drivers set records right at the end of that session. Yeah, Paul Dana broke the track record. Yep. 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 Well, it's really risky to take a car with four-digit horsepower out on a damp track on slicks. So for me, I need it to be dry or else I can't really do anything. Like I can't You know, you're push. never going to win one lap with that attitude. Uh, we, well, you're we not going to win one, one lap? lap on slicks in the rain either, Avery. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. I was in the same boat. I was, like, thinking slicks and wet, damp, and cold track, 50 degrees. And uh, I was, yeah, we'll wait. But then once I saw those times come across, I got pretty itchy pretty quick. Well, I think what would have been maybe wise is to kind of have the car ready because it was an open grid and it's hour long. If you were really savvy, you probably could have just sniped the last 10 minutes of it. Because it would have been totally fine to show up to grid 10 minutes before the session closed. And that probably would have been smart in hindsight. But we were kind of putting all our eggs in the final heat basket. And that crapped out really so bad for us. So what happened then? So you uh, it's Saturday, heat three of the day. Everything looks like it's going to go your way. Uh, you're currently, you at the time, were leading um, the overall field. And... Show up to the front of grid. Everything seems fine. You go out. What happens? So Ferris and I have, are really good friends, and we talk trash a lot. And the, the trash talking got extra heated this weekend. And he wanted me to give him P1 for the session today. And I'm like, no. I earned it. I'm taking it. I'm going out P1. And he said, I'm going to pass you on the front stretch of lap one. And I said, the hell you are. I hope you didn't make a big bet for this. So there was no bet. But I turned my car to the top boost level, which what's really kind of cool is Tim has it set up. So we have like live data. We always know how much horsepower the car is making because we tune it for the mountain to max out of the specific horsepower. So I'm going down the front straight. The car is pulling its butt off. We haven't run it this whole weekend at that level. I shifted sixth gear and it went into limp mode. It went into limp mode because there's this really weird quirk in MoTeC software with the way it calculates injector duty cycle based on fuel cut. And when I shifted sixth gear, the fuel cut for sixth gear dropped the fuel flow percentage to zero. Well, that made the injector duty cycle jump up over 100% on the shift because the way the anti-lag works, the boost was higher when we were shifting than it would be normally. So it dorked out the MoTeC. It thought we had 105% injector duty cycle and it went into limp mode. And for whatever reason, we had that particular limp mode latch. Oh, and no. it never turned back off. So I pulled the car in. We pulled the data and figured out that it was just a really stupid thing. And it was something that, like, it's already fixed on the car, but we lost the session. But the cool part was the logged horsepower was 1,180 horsepower Neat. down the front straight. So I'm going to run it tomorrow morning at 1,180 horsepower and just see what it'll do. Just because I think it'd be fun to see what now, will it do at 1,180. I don't think that we can trust the weather at all. Today, this morning, it said the, percent, uh, the chance of rain was very, very low. And... Uh, while it was raining, it said it was 0%. Yeah, it was pretty... 
It was. It wasn't really raining hard. It was just raining enough that everything was wet and it was really cold. So it was not very hard ugly. enough to where we had to take shelter because we stood out in it pretty much the whole time. Didn't really get wet, but the track surface certainly was. I yeah. think tomorrow it's going to be brisk in the morning, uh, but the high is seventy six. So brisk doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Turbo cars don't mind brisk at all. So mine felt pretty sporty this afternoon in the brisk air for sure, but not eleven 1, hundred horsepower, <laughs> sporty. So a lot of cars here are flat on the banking. Uh, are you up to a break? Do you have to break? It's I really honestly have looked at data and I know what we have in downforce, and I feel like I could probably do a lift and then carry throttle through it and yeah. carry a bunch of speed. To be honest, I've been too chicken to do it because. I'm going into that to turn one at over 150 miles an hour. And when you're over 150 miles an hour looking at a wall, it's just, I haven't had the guts to hold it. <laughs> like, I wish I did. And I'm going to try my best tomorrow to carry as much speed as possible through there because the amount of downforce we make, it should carry huge speed through there. And I know Ferris got a really good lap this afternoon, and it was because he really attacked the speed on that banked oval. And I know that we have every bit, if not more, downforce. I should be able to go through that as fast, if not faster. It's just, do I have the guts to do it? And that's... Does it... I mean, I, I know that all of us here can appreciate racers of many varieties. Coming here to a Roval and going at that speed, does it make you appreciate the NASCAR guys a little bit more? I would, I would say it does, in a way, because they have to really get used to that. I think for us, it's just weird. It, I think, yeah, it's just weird. The feeling of the track curving in and when is it going to catch you? Uh, and then the, 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 the sliding around as you work your way back out of it, up toward the wall. And you see those guys always counter-steering right up to the wall. And we're, I, I wouldn't say we're that close, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we push it as hard. But my friend Austin did a lot of oval track stuff, and he kind of gave me some pointers on the ovals and the you know the banked ovals and you have all that information in your brain but when you're out there it's just alien because you're you know as driving time attack or hill climb or anything else you're used to lateral g's but this is almost like a vertical g because of the banking mm -hmm. and you're getting this mix of vertical with lateral g and when you feel the car moving around it just it feels different to me it doesn't feel the same as going around a normal corner and you got it in the back of your mind always that, okay, on the outside of the line on the bank is marbles. And you could see them there. And if you, you know if you get the outside tires in the marbles, it's a short trip to the wall. And how risky do I want to be? How do I want to risk touching the marbles and just getting sucked up into the wall? Or do I want to leave some on the table? And it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I saw uh, a bunch of drivers take different approaches uh, past start-finish today. There was some discussion in the timing tower about whether or not the advantage of driving down the hill to reach start-finish is faster or slower than just staying high and accelerating through. What do you think? That's almost like a GLTC question because those guys analyze <laughs> data so much because... A tenth of a second matters to them, where to me, with as much power as we have, it's just 
how big a stones do I have and how much time do I have to set up for turn one? So for me, screw the half a tenth of driving down to start finish. I need to focus on the half a second to a second I can gain in one and two and being comfortable. So my focus usually going down that whole sector is full power. trying to psych myself up for turn one and two. <laughs> and I don't really care about the rest. What about you, Robert? Uh, on my last lap, I definitely drove down. I remember I, I tracked out and then I was looking at the start finish line. I'm like, man, it certainly looks quite a bit closer down there. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, it's angled quite a bit. I just from your from the top, it, it just seemed it just it is it an optical looked, illusion or has anybody know. gone out with the track cold well, no, and it's, like it's weird, tried right? to because figure it out? It what seems closer because it's turning the whole time, and it seems like if you draw a straight line, it's shorter the lower you go. But you're driving at an angle instead of a straight line. You're driving at an I'd, angle to the bottom of the track instead of straight. But it's closer. <laughs> maybe. It's, are and, you sure? No. And maybe like in need, a GLTC car, this. maybe you pick up a mile an hour, maybe. But uh, but then you have to drive back up for one. So yeah, it's I only know. good on like a quali. I know. It happens. Plus your power band. Oh. The GLTC boys probably have figured out. They drive down and then back up. I don't know that it's better. Because you've got more distance to cover when you do that. Well, you're, the shortest distance is a straight line. You start angling to go back low, you're adding distance. Well, and you're, and you're going down and you're going back up. It's weird. Yeah, it, it seems really weird. <laughs> I, you know what? I was over in Andy's trailer early, and I saw Tomo going like deeply into every <laughs> sector of that track. If we want to know who may have measured that out and knows exactly, it's probably him. Yeah, just pull data up with distance. You could probably sort it out. No, I don't think it's a probably. I think it's okay, absolutely been done. <laughs> probably my butt. He did it. You well, know he did. You know, it's There's not no even, way he didn't. It's not even that hard because in GLTC, you just follow another car. When you're following another S2000, that's exactly the same as yours. And you just see... And you just take the shorter line quicker. or yeah. longer. But see, it might be quicker to the start finish, but then cost you after. Because Maybe. the quick line... And see, we actually had a, a deal here once where we were testing with Rees Millen out here for the hill climb. Yep. And there was an argument at that point that driving the return road, like the track out road, was faster than the bank. No way. And what was crazy is people were running pretty damn fast lap times on the track out road because the distance was a fair bit shorter. So... It's the same thing. Unless you actually measure it, it's all opinion at that point. He's not giving up. He, he's giving us a coy look. I, I don't think he's going to give us any secrets. I don't know. So he's actually tested it. <laughs> he's doing the, we've tried this because I've, we thought we were going to hack the system and it didn't work. Now. On other ovals, for sure. The yeah, team, one, the ASM team did something extraordinary today. I don't know if you saw it. Um, they, uh, during the top 10 shootout, had cars in three, five, and six position, I think. And they found that in the rules, there wasn't anything that said that a, tires from one car couldn't be swapped to another car during such an event. <laughs> and so what they did do was they got the benefit of hot tires on the car that was uh, later to go because the, uh, another car had just come in. So they did the swap in like a couple of minutes and they made it 
to the start line for Adam to release them with four seconds to spare. I think four is optimistic. It might have been three or two. <laughs> I mean, he was counting down on his fingers. So how like much that. time was it worth? I mean, the hot tires have to be worth something. This morning? Well, a pretty good amount. Tom qualified P1, and he was uh, half a second faster than Andy. Yep. So... So here's, here's the huge question. Is that going to be something that's left to be no, a thing? Or you're closing not. the that door? A one and that's done. a one-time that's thing. That's a one-and-done. You're, you're closing the door right away. Oh, boy. Yeah, but, we pulled out there. We put we pulled the cars into grid, and we put the last car that was going to go out on jack stands, removed all the wheels and tires <laughs> from it, and it sat there the whole and time. And everybody's like, God, I hate you guys. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> there's four impact guns, two sets, two just sets of jacks. And uh, we, as uh, Gridlife staff, made sure that the team torqued all the wheels before they were released, and they did. So uh, it, was it was very safe. cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, stuff like that, I think, is what makes motorsports fun. And I think if you get too much of that stuff removed and the creativity and the weird ideas, it starts to get boring. Because a lot of the guys in the pro racing kind of yearn for the stuff that we're doing with the grassroots because we can be creative still. And... If you take that away, you take away something that makes it really interesting and fun and different. So, so the, the situation was similar, actually, to NCM this year. There, during a GL, GLTC race, Tom or not, it was Andy had a puncture, like a flat on track. Uh, but just completely serendipitously, it was a black flag, flag all at the same time. And there's nothing in the rules at the time that said that you couldn't work on your car if things come back to pits. So the entire field comes into pit lane and Andy already has a team of people with another tire ready to jack his car up and change the wheel. He didn't lose a position and he went back out on track when the cars were released. It was cool. Yeah. And that's so really is that cool. a rule now? I don't think that's a rule. Oh, that was uh, still good. There like, you go. It was completely a coincidence that there was a black flag all. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing stopping you from changing a tire during a race, but if you had to in a GLTC race, you would lose. Except for that situation. Except for that, Except one, for that one, time. one time. Well, and here's where, where my head goes. You guys need a highlights reel of all of the cool idiosyncrasies that have happened. The hard part and is having that would a be camera really cool. where it needs to be exactly when it needs to be there. I well, thought with the cell phones and everything, you know the video exists. Yeah. It's there. I thought that I was going to see a car on... Uh, Air jacks today with tire warmers on, but I, I guess we missed that. Well, it, I was gonna do that just to mess with Ferris, and then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, that's a pretty big flex, and if something goes wrong, I'm gonna look like a douche canoe. <laughs> and fortunately, I didn't because the car like immediately goes into limp mode, and that would have been really bad. So, what did Ferris have to say as soon as he got back? He was kind of bitching at me because my car broke and I messed up his exit for turn two and i'm like are you serious dude that checks out <laughs> i'm like i had a mechanical it was legit and i was on the apron i'm sorry if your so, exit got uh you didn't use tire warmers i did i had it on oh, not, warmers not on but course. we did not, not use at. tire warmers on grid which on grid. is another thing that currently is okay silly i know but allowed. It's a little ridiculous, and it probably would only make sense like today when it's 50 degrees and yeah. really damp. But, you know, normally we wouldn't need to do that. So uh, the reason I wanted to have both of you guys on the show is in your race cars, Robert with the Big Bad Wolf and Mike with the Camaro, you 
at least for a period, had your car equipped with something interesting. Robert, you did this like, what, seven or eight years ago now? Uh, 2015 and 16, I so think, was mine. I think people are familiar with what a rocket analog system is on a car, but can, Robert, can you talk about it a little bit? Like, what's it, give give the audience sure. like what it is, sure. how it works. So um, we run big turbos, and we want them to be spooled all the time. So the rocket analog takes excess fuel and air from the system, combusts them together outside of the motor and feeds that back into turbo to make it run closed loop. Is the fuel excess or is it injected into the rocket? It is excess. Okay, so how do you get, where where does the excess come from? I'll let you answer this one because you've done it more recently now than I have. (laughs) So there's a couple different schools of thought with it. So a rocket anti-lag isn't really technically a rocket. It's more like a jet combustor. Sure. And there's multiple different ways of fueling it and Probably the most prolific rocket anti-lags, and correct me if I'm wrong, Robert, were, was ProDrive did it with Subaru rally cars. Right. And those were kind of the heyday of rocket anti-lag, and all the nerds of cool car tech found it from those guys. Yep. They did it a few different ways, to my knowledge, where you could fuel the rocket externally, where you actually injected fuel into the exhaust, which became taboo almost immediately, because... Tech guys, when they hear that you're injecting fuel into hot exhaust, think fire immediately. Sure, and yeah. They go away from that. So to get around that, there are strategies that you could employ where you cut the timing on a cylinder, but you fuel it or sometimes even overfuel it so that the fuel runs through that cylinder, never ignites, and gets into the exhaust. I see. And if you do that properly... You can actually create the correct fuel mixture for the rocket combustion chamber to light off. But there's different ways of igniting rockets as well. Some people will actually run like glow plugs or all kinds of other things in those things to try to create a flame in the center of the rocket. Or you can have it just really basic where you heat the rocket up to the point that it can cause ignition. Sure. So there's many different versions of rocket anti-lag where it can be all the way up to a full tilt jet combustor with fuel injectors and a flame tube and the whole nine yards which i think robert ran way closer to that on his car from my understanding is his was a much more complicated rocket than what we ran the rocket yeah the chamber itself i think mine was a bit more complex Uh, i had multiple mixing stages I had a, a glow ring, as I called it, you know, a thick Inconel ring that we would preheat. You know, we had a separate mode just for preheating it to get it hot enough to sustain a flame. Um, this is kind of like an engine map where whatever you're doing will allow that ring to heat up. Is that right? Yeah, you can heat you can heat up your exhaust easy, right? I mean, uh, yeah, it's it, a, it's a lot of like timing. Yeah, and things is. like that. If you fire it late and things you could do to like spike the EGT. Yeah. So we would pull 50 degrees of timing and leave the fueling as if we were doing normal combustion. So all of that combusting gas would be 100% in the exhaust. Okay. And you can spike EGTs really quick at you know, 3,000 RPM. And what's really quick, like a couple seconds or more than that? Yeah, three, three to five seconds. Okay. And it depends on how aggressive you were. I mean, if we, we didn't want to sit there and grid and rev too much, so we had a, a warm-up at 3,000 RPM. And it would take... 
maybe five seconds. Okay. And a lot of that also has to do with the thermal mass of the rocket itself. Sure. Which is kind of another oh, interesting yeah. thing. Is yours because faster because it's smaller? You know, but it, the but the diameter's larger. Mm. So sometimes I'll have a little bit more of a a trick to get ours to fully, fully light. But I've found that the only time we've ever really needed to fully, fully light ours is like on the starting line at the hill climb. Okay. And we'll hmm. spend a bunch of time while we're like pre-staging to make sure that we just have that thing like lit. It's hot. Yeah. Because ours is capable at 9,000 feet of generating 10 pounds of boost at the starting line. Cool. <laughs> which certainly helps when you're trying to leave the yep. starting line at yeah. the hill climb. But it's kind of impractical for some other things like what you were doing. You know, your situation was different. So you had different things that you needed it to do. So, Robert, talk about how, like, the mechanics of yours worked. You said you had a glow ring. But, like, how did it receive fuel? How did it? Sure. So, I mean, the fuel came through the motor. You know, the so same. Like I think we both cylinder do it the same way. So, like, a cylinder or many cylinders? All cylinders. Okay. So, we would still pull a whole bunch of timing. Um, we realized we'd keep ignition on more to make sure it didn't flame out. Because that would happen sometimes when it wasn't hot enough. And then, uh... Oh, jeez. Excuse me for a second. Super dizzy. Oh, all right, we're back. So, yep. Robert, I think when we uh, paused here for a second, I had just asked you if you could explain how your specific analog system worked. You so, said that you took fuel from basically all the cylinders running in like this heat up type map, and then what? Yeah, so, I mean, we basically pull timing. We would run it at 50 degrees pulled. Um, from the normal fueling map, we ran about 30% less fuel than normal. And uh, we generate excess energy right we'd uh we had a an extra wastegate that would dump air into the rocket into the side of it and it would mix and the combustor would run like 20 percent over what we needed for the turbo and then the wastegate was like that was the closed loop part and that's how we'd bleed off the extra energy gotcha and we try to maintain uh one bar of boost off throttle uh all the time and that that's, was a that's fourteen point seven for you non nerds. <laughs> yep, four, fourteen pounds of boost off throttle, um, unless we needed more. So it was variable depending on what uh, RPM we were at and what setting we had, okay. how much anti lag we would get. Most of it stayed the same. It was just the wastegate positioning that would change, um, and sometimes I'd have to go in there and bump it up and down a little depending on uh, altitude and EGTs and stuff. And so. Uh, the car or the concept to use this was it specifically for SCC Auto, SCCA Autocross right. Nationals, yeah, or so was it just like, hey, I want to do this and it'll probably work here? No, mine was like, I want to win nationals on a turbo that's way too big. Because <laughs> everyone I want the efficiency, but I, I don't well, want the okay. lag. What I really wanted was I wanted the car to accelerate at one G in any gear at any speed that I could possibly do on autocross. You know, right out of the gate. So in, because you had a, it was an OS Gaiken, uh sequential or what was yeah. it? Quay, or, yeah, yeah, uh, Quave sequential. It was a Quave sequential. Quave sequential. A 69G. And, so that would be like two, three, four for autocross, or that was one, two, and three. Okay. I had very odd gearing that I selected for it for yeah. it to work, um, and it would in the end. But that meant in order to let's say do eighty miles an hour and keep accelerating at one G, I needed a little over seven hundred horsepower. So I needed a turbo that could sustain that 
and then would also work down at 3,000 RPM on a two liter. Sure. So, um, you know, sizing wise, we ended up with a 3576 uh, turbo. It's a big turbo. But it's, it's a pretty big um, turbo. Like Garrett has replaced those numbers with yes. like G series now, but like it's a pretty big turbo. Yeah, it, it was. It's pretty big, um, and the car would. You know, um, we could make 700 horsepower on the dyno on that turbo, and it was pretty happy. But it was pretty laggy. It wouldn't make full boost until 6,000 RPM. Good grief. That's laggy. So it was pretty <laughs> It was pretty atrocious. Um, but we, we knew that that was the plan from the beginning, was this anti-lag. And uh, once we got it running, we could make full boost at 2,800 RPM. <laughs> and it would sustain it just fine. So it felt like a big black Chevy, but it was a f- yes. four-cylinder? <laughs> it was hilarious to put people in this car that were very experienced drivers and watch them loop it. Because there's no way you can tell someone that, you know, careful on the throttle. Because when you, if you crack, if you hit it 30% mid corner, you will be backward. There's, well, and you take a car that's kind of known for being a little bit tail happy anyway. It still and, sounds like a four cylinder. Right. That's going to give yeah. you nothing in return. <laughs> <laughs> um, what class was that for? Uh, Super Street Modified. Okay. SSM. So th- I think that was a year that, did Chris Mayfield win SM and you won SSM? Yes. That yep. was yeah, that's a good year. Actually, so the car was built for 2015, and we just trophied with the car. And Nationals was its first outing. It took a little longer to get it together, of course, than expected. So we spent almost a full year from the car winning in 2014 uh, in BSP, actually with Mayfield driving. And then 15, we went back, and that was the shakedown was Nationals. Okay. And then it took us another six months until the car was drivable. And so then in 16, you went, I remember this very clearly, you went to one lap of America in a stock GTR and one. So that's pretty good for the start oh, of the year. Yes, and that's right. And then that is the same year that you won the Nationals with the car? Yep. That's a pretty good year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a really good year for sure. Yep. Stock GTR for one lap. That went, that went really well. And then uh, we built three street mod cars. We built an SMF car, an SM car, and an SSM car. And two out of the three won. The next year, I went back and drove the SS, the SMF car, and then we won in that. So we, we almost had all three, but... Man, so close. So yeah. so after you won Nationals, then what happened to the setup? Um, we had smoked it pretty good at that point. You know, even at Nationals and all the testing that we did out there, we, we put another 40 runs or 40 heat cycles on the system. Um, we're running it pretty hot, lots of insulation... Um, I used it once or twice after that. And then actually the very next event after that, I came out and did my first grid life event in the car. I remember. At Gingerman, it was not a festival. I think we had you on the show. That was the first time. Yep. Uh, and I think you were running on three cylinders that weekend. Yeah, I had an injector driver on the M800 go bad. And... Uh-oh. <laughs> And uh, could, couldn't quite get it together. You're still really fast, I remember. It was pretty quick for what it was that weekend. Yep. And all the all the rocket stuff was still there, but on track, the lag was fine. I mean, a little bit of lag on track was okay. Um, you roll on power, and it, it builds as you exit a corner. And So just because I don't run S2s, you're saying it doesn't come in till 6,000. That sounds like a more than a little bit of lag to me. So, like, how high are you spinning that thing if you're saying 6,000 RPM spools a little bit? Um, right, so we run it to 8,800. And 
So that's only like a 2,800 RPM bandwidth. And by when my, I mean 6,000, I mean like, I don't mean like it starts to come on. I mean like that's when we make make peak boost or whatever. Um, okay. But yeah, it's a little bit of a short bandwidth. But the sequential is <laughs> also really close together, and it flat shifts just fine. So. And what kind of torque numbers does that does that engine give you without boost? Is it pretty low on torque? Yeah, like I don't know if it cracks two hundred. Okay, so it's pretty low torque until you get boost on it. Yeah, so you're having to run that thing probably fifty five hundred plus to have. Yeah, it happy. I mean you want to be like mid corner, maybe down to like forty five hundred, and as you roll onto it, it rolls up that fifteen hundred up back up to max, you know, max torque at. 6,500. Just kind of timing the boost curve to yeah. the traction. Yeah, kind of exactly. Thing. Well, yep. in, in that case, does it kind of feel like you're being shot out of a cannon because it kind of like loads up? It and feels then, pretty good. It I feels mean, good. I remember comparing straight line speed at like when we did Road Atlanta with that car at full tilt and it would match like GTLM cars. Yeah. You know, we were same speed, same accelerations and everything. So it's quick, but not insanely quick. Not to the level of, uh, I would say, what it takes to run competitive unlimited time attack now like you are unlimited time attack is it's like dumb and i'm saying that as a person who like is involved i think it's dumb <laughs> yeah so uh, 1100 uh, horsepower mike is that's kind of next level i don't think i'm in well, the ballpark that's, that's not the highest setting anymore oh of course yeah sorry that's, <laughs> that's on the mid mode that's the it's still safe when well, i'm at 700 i'm like crossing my fingers yeah and it was funny because last weekend we were testing the car at 1300 wheel and it was just ridiculous. I was talking to Robert about it earlier. I'm like, running it at 1300 is so difficult to just get my head wrapped around that you're coming into corners and you just don't know how fast you're going. You're like, I don't even know how much brakes to use right now because <laughs> I, I don't really know how fast I'm going. I feel like I could just about imagine what it'd be like to run like, think like an eight second drag car acceleration, and when you hit the quarter mile. Plan your break and turn in point. <laughs> I would just <laughs> most people would it's probably just pretty similar. Do not have the uh, enough mental bandwidth to handle that, and even I would, I'm sure, would struggle. So, uh, Mike, you've been on the show a couple of times, and you have been time attacking with Gridlife for a few years. The car originally kind of came in in its Optima spec, which is very limited aero. Uh, I remember at Road Atlanta a few years ago, you had a sort of like uh, pontoon type skipping incident uh, through turn 10 at a very high rate of speed. Uh, I probably would have had a really fast lap because I took the shortcut through 10. I say you and I were pretty competitive against each other that weekend, I believe. Yeah, it was pretty fun. It's like you had, you would have a really good lap and Mm -hmm. I'd chase you. And then the next time I'd chase you and you'd have something going on and I'm like, darn it. Yep. So yeah, it was, that was really fun. That was probably the first time I actually ever was around you. Yep. And, I really love that track. It's so much fun, but it's there's some really intimidating. It gives me the willies. I don't like it that at all. Track. I know I'm not a driver like that, especially now. But that track gives me the willies. I tried to go under the bridge, WFO once, and the car hucked sideways <laughs> under the bridge going down the hill, and I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, it was okay. But the car has kind of become more focused. You used to do Ultimate Street Car, which meant that it would do everything pretty well and then more recently you have focused your attention on both time attack and in hill climb and with that you've added a lot more aerodynamic development the car looks more focused than it used to be how does uh actually last year you 
did hill climb, I think, for the second or third time. And at Last that time, year was the second time. And uh, at that time, I think you were using a, a compound, like sequential-style turbo setup. You've now moved to a big single, and you have a rocket system. Can you tell me about your, your big rocket? So the, the really funny thing about the rocket for us is because we wanted to simplify the car. And to, to think that we added a rocket to simplify our car is kind of hilarious. But if you've ever tried to wrap your head around making a compound system work well with a gas engine, the rocket's a little bit simpler. And my data guy, Tim Witteridge at Motorsports Electronics, he's been really working with me on how do we get the turbo system to work efficiently at all different altitudes. Because a lot of people aren't really faced with that issue because they're going to be worried about this is the highest they're ever going to run here at Pikes Peak International Raceway at, like, what are we, 5,000, 5,500 feet. And they're like, wow, this is crazy. This is super hard to run at this altitude because it's just under a mile high. But for us, this is 4,000 feet less than we run at the start of our race that goes to 15,000 feet. And what people lose sight of is to get a turbo that can build the power that you need at 15,000 feet, you have to have a giant amount of mass flow. And it's kind of the exact same thing how that big is, was doing. How big is giant? Is it like more than 100 or is it? We run, and you'll have to forgive me because some of these numbers escape me, but I think we run like 120 to 130 pounds of airflow per minute good grief in the car so and, so that's what you're using but the turbo then probably is sized for a little bit more for a little that. bit more and we're currently running a g50 88 mil turbo on the car that is properly ginormous it's a if big, you don't know turbo a, sizes if if you were to compare ginormous. it to a size of a basketball is it bigger or smaller than a basketball a little bit smaller but not a lot. Just it's a basically a pro mod turbo. Yeah. Like what pro mod drag cars run, we're running one of those. And the car, the thing barely fits anywhere. Yeah. If you took it's two huge. and a half of what I run, you'd, you'd be about there. So our intake tube is six inch diameter. So we have to have a six inch diameter air filter on the car. In this case, packaging, I'm sure, for a single is not much easier than a couple of smaller uh, like a twin setup so why why go with the giant single we went with the giant single strictly because it simplified using the rocket Mm. and it allowed us to use all of the energy from both banks to combine to spool one turbo and there's a gigantic argument forever with turbo people as to whether an efficient single outspools an efficient twin setup. Right. And it's a huge argument that real, really there's no correct answer. It has not been proven scientifically which is better. There's people that say twins are better. There's people that say singles are better. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to packaging. And for us, it's way easier to build and manage one rocket than it is to build and manage two rockets when so that's we, where we came from when we originally talked about you trying to start building a rocket <laughs> and i was like i was definitely on the like good luck because of how much i struggled with it and then you're like and then we're gonna make two <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh man well people made probably nobody knows but i actually talked to robert a fair bit when i was having the harebrained scheme with the rocket because i knew he had run it 
so I reached out and we talked about it quite a bit. Yep. And I had experimented with it on our own and created some gigantic fireballs and all kinds of weird stuff. Test stand (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Where Patrick (laughs) just disappears in a ball of fire and all this fun stuff. But actually, for a time, we had decided to shelve the project because there was just things that I was missing. And then Tim became friends with Matt. Matt worked at ProDrive and (laughs) knew all of the engineering behind Rockets. And it was like... He brought math to the table. He brought a bunch more math to the table. And it's like, okay, game on. We have the engineering team to make a rocket, a slam dunk. We could make it work. So I didn't see the car with the hood off yesterday as you came through, or two days ago as you came through tech. Uh, Tell me about where it it lives. Like, where's the turbo relative to the engine? Where's all that stuff at? So the turbo lives on the passenger side of the car, kind of up about cowl height. Uh, we ran it a little bit higher because we needed room underneath it to get the rocket and everything packaged. And we also had had a bunch of problems in the past with super low mounted turbos having oil scavenging issues right. and the car just blowing oil out the side because when the dry sump sumps and so if, weird uh, stuff. In so in the case where you have obviously the, the driver side bank, uh, headers. Mm-hmm. How how are things routed to to have everything run through the rocket and then it gets to the turbo? So the driver's side bank runs straight down, and then because we had run a dry sump, the oil pan's really short. Okay. So the turbo t- or the driver's side bank tubes go under the oil pan and then back up onto the passenger side. Okay. And then we run a really long primary tube system on the car, and in the past. I had focused a lot of my energy on decreasing the total manifold volume so that I could fill it more quickly and spool it more quickly. What we started to run into is with the low primary volumes, we were running into really weird exhaust pressure issues and super high EGTs. Hmm. So when we redesigned the system this time, we incorporated very similar primary tube lengths to what you would typically see in a naturally aspirated situation. And we saw a drastic improvement in torque production at low RPM. Okay. And that torque production leads to turbo spooling. So we actually found that by sacrificing a little bit of volume, but optimizing the primary tube length, we were able to spool quicker, okay, which so is counterintuitive for some people that build a lot of turbo setups. And, you know, you see like log manifolds and things like yeah. that. And the data that we see proves, at least for, from our experience, that that is not the correct way to go. So uh, in your setup, the driver's side bank runs underneath. Yeah, presumably it is longer than the passenger side bank or is the passenger side The primary tubes long? are the same Okay, on each side. But the driver's side has a section of tube that merges okay. just before the rocket. Okay. And we tried to keep that minimized okay. because we didn't want a gigantic bank-to-bank differential. Sure. But from what we're seeing right now, we aren't seeing any negative effects of the slight difference. Because obviously, ideally, you'd wire them together with perfectly the same lengths and mm-hmm. all that. But packaging just 
didn't allow for that. Okay. And so uh, you had said maybe you could talk a little bit about the details for how the rocket system in your car works. Can you share that with us? Sure. So mine is a much, much simpler version than what the earlier rocket systems were. Because when we started talking to the guys, they're, they're saying we needed like a 15 or 16 inch long rocket. And it's multi-chamber, you know, very similar That's to what Robert mine is, yeah. had built. And we just figured, you know what? Let's try to just simplify this because we're trying to make a car that can go to the hill climb. We want it as simple as we could possibly make it, as idiot-proof as we could possibly make it. Let's just do a very simple chambered design. With I spent a bunch of effort on making sure that the recirc valve swirled the air really well and mixed very well in the rocket itself. And we kind of struggled with, you know, like the, what is the volume of air we want to flow? Because essentially the anti-lag valve is the fresh air valve that goes into the rocket. And if you size that valve too small, you can cause problems and too big, you could cause problems. So we kind of erred on the side of larger so that we can get a lot of mass flow through the rocket so that we wouldn't, you know, have a drag on the turbo itself so that we could keep the turbo speed up more easily without having to use as much energy to keep it spinning. If we could incorporate less energy but have less drag, then we could keep it spooled with that theory, right? Yep. So you can go, I want more energy to overcome a little bit more drag or less energy to overcome a little bit less drag. Got it. So we went the less energy, less drag route, which allowed us to run a simpler rocket, which I think kind of shocked everyone that was a kind of part of the team with how well it worked because we thought we were going to get it where it would spool quicker, but we were but not self-sustained. We weren't anticipating self-sustaining boost right. because our, our system is exceptionally simple. It's like a sleeve and a jacket. It shouldn't work. Can, your, can yours make more than you would ever need? It can. We've never run it more than 10 pounds at idle. Okay. But it ab- we absolutely feel like it can do more. Yep. We just haven't tuned it for more because my car's got a 427-inch motor, <laughs> and more than 10 pounds of boosted idle is uncontrollable. Yep. So it's become practically irrelevant. Yeah, sure. So at some point, if it's practically irrelevant, you don't really test so, it yeah. beyond that. Uh, how much do any of the other driveline parts have to be improved like for the launch at the hill climb if you make that much torque at idle is that something you have to worry about as additional stress typically we don't because in theory what we're using the rocket for is artificial atmosphere so to put it really plainly for people that don't do it all the time you at sea level you have 14.7 pounds of atmosphere right one bar one atmosphere acting on your engine and then you put boost on top of that. Right. As you raise an altitude, that pressure decreases. At the top of the mountain, we're at like eight pounds. So almost half right. the pressure, right? For a naturally aspirated car, yeah. the horsepower would drop by 50%. Pr- proportionally, yeah. Which is the math that everybody's familiar with. I lose half the power, and they don't. That's why, because you lose nearly half 
the pressure that pushes air into the engine. So our reason behind the rocket is not to necessarily generate boost at atmospheric pressure. It's to create an artificial bandwidth, if you will. So our car doesn't ever drop below 14 pounds. I see. So it feels like Hmm. it's at sea level no matter what altitude it's at. Interesting. So we could run the car here today. We could go to the top of Pikes Peak tomorrow, and if we turn the knobs, that car will run the exact same amount of horsepower. So today we ran 1,180 horsepower at Pikes Peak International Raceway. Sure. We can go to the summit of Pikes Peak tomorrow. I could set it on the same boost settings, and it'll make 1,180 horsepower. Cool. Which is (laughs) really difficult to do. That's impressive. But that's how we did it. We did it because we needed to have a turbo that's capable of the mass flow to create the horsepower that we need, but then we needed some way of artificially making it feel like it's at sea level no matter where we put it. And I imagine maybe this isn't the primary benefit, but a benefit of doing it that way is that the car drivability will feel consistent regardless of where you are. Is that Yeah, absolutely. So if we do it correctly and you drove the car from sea level to 15,000 feet, it should feel the same. Hmm. It shouldn't feel an iota different at any altitude, which is a huge engineering challenge, but fortunately, we've got a really smart team of guys, and we've done it, and it works. So, uh, I don't know, did you use it at this event? Like, was it advantageous to run it? I didn't turn the rocket on here because we've been having issues with grip and the lower speed stuff, and it's kind of like what Robert was talking about, like, if you give it too much throttle, you will loop it. And we were also having some TC issues. So the combo of TC issues and just hitting it with massive amounts of torque, it just, I haven't done it yet. Tomorrow, the plan is to run it on the higher power and then run the rocket and just kind of see what it does because we theoretically have the TC back online. Gotcha. It was kind of a silly thing with brake pressures that I, is another one of those goofy rabbit holes. I couldn't, so how I do couldn't you quite test? imagine what that would feel like with the goal of mine it was to make the car drive like it had a 427 v8 so i yeah. couldn't imagine what would that would be like again double again it's like a we want like a 900 cubic inch right. <laughs> so so like how do you test that setup at events or or test days or whatever to make sure that it's going to work the way you want it at the hill climb so the only way to really truly test it at super high altitude is to run the hill climb test days, which we try to run every single one that we can. Um, but a big reason that we're here this weekend is it's another event that's fun with friends that's at altitude. And our whole goal with the whole co- with the car is that it's set up for altitude and it's sure. perfect. And, you know, we found a, a chink in the armor today that, you know, we were running it at 900 horsepower yesterday. And at 900 horsepower, it was happy as a clam. And today at 1180, we found a little thing that pisses it off. But what's good is we found it. We're fixing it. And it won't be a problem again. And if we ever go run it at 1180 horsepower again anywhere. Like tomorrow? Yeah. Well, and we're going to run it. The (laughs) only reason I'm running it tomorrow that way is because I want to prove that it's fixed. That's a good reason. I want to have the data that says, okay, at 1180, it's good. And honestly, we won't run the car at 1180 very much. Because it's another one of those things that, like, it's not practical. It's kind of ridiculous. And <laughs> it, it really only works if you have really long straights. And here, 
we can use the 1180 on the two straights here and it'll stick it and it'll go but it's a little mind-numbing because you have to figure out as a driver okay now i'm going 10 miles an hour faster than i thought i should be going and what does that do to everything else how do you back up the braking zone for that yeah where's the braking zone now yeah like at the seven board or the eight board (laughs) yeah well the funny thing is i was talking to ferris about the braking zone in the back straight because I felt like my braking zone was ridiculous because before I get to the curb on the left, before you get to, like, the infield straight, I already have to be on the brakes. No way. If I'm not on the brakes by then, I can't stop. <laughs> I can't make the, the horseshoe. And, I'll, and Ferris is the same way. Neither one of us can have any power huh. down once we cross the stripe between the two different tarmacs because right when we it changes, won't have enough brakes. Right where it changes is where I mash the brakes. Yeah. And I'm probably going 140 maybe. Yeah, and I'm going – a little over 150, and I think Ferris was getting a little bit more because he was a little gutsier than me, carrying more speed around the the banking. Gotcha. And tomorrow my goal is to really send it around the banking, and I'm thinking I'm going to back it up a couple cars before the <laughs> before the tarmac change and hope that I can make the turn. So uh, a big topic of discussion for this weekend among drivers has been the bump here, which has uh, been a uh, – a feature of the track for quite a while forever uh talk about your setup in the camaro and then also about the porsche what is that experience of going through the bump like for you actually first let me preface by saying if you walk across the bump in on your feet or you ride on a scooter it's barely noticeable it is a really like uh low speed type of compression and rebound it's not a, a very abrupt thing it's not a pothole but no. as you yeah. as you go over it at an insanely high rate of speed, it can uh, upset the car a lot. So what's it like in your car? So when I was being a baby and I didn't have any any real speed through it, my car barely notices it. Um, when I brought the speed up a little bit, it'll scrape, but it doesn't get upset. And I have to say that my car has to be set up a little bit different than a normal time attack car because it's set up for the hill climb and the hill climb is notoriously rough right so the bump here in terms of what the hill climb is like it's a baby bump it's non-issue it doesn't exist it's not even if it was a richter scale of one to ten that's a one really compared to what we see on the hill climb we've broken axles on bumps at the hill climb it's so rough i've so, seen some videos of cup cars and cars like what i'm driving literally just wrecking over bumps on the hill climb they just will not stop yeah because they're not on the ground right like, there's, <laughs> it's you're not on the ground at all you're touching the tops of bumps abs freaks out and people huck it there's a, a corner up there that's notoriously bad for the braking bumps called uh i don't know if it's Cog cut, I think, is one of the ones that's really, really bad up there. And uh, actually, I think that might be the corner that uh, Unser had a little bit of a problem with this year in a Porsche because the car's just not on the ground. So, how do you adjust suspension for that? And how do you adjust braking for that? You really can't. So, your car soaks it up pretty well then? It's designed to have a very progressive rate to it. And it's got really super high spring rates because it's an aero car, and it has to. Sure. But we also try to keep it very compliant. And the goal of a car like mine that's an aero car is how do you manage keeping the car off the ground so you don't choke the aero 
when you're going through gigantic bumps because to make the arrow work, it's the splitter low. wants to be like 50 mil. Yeah. But how do you use that 50 mil to keep it off the ground when you're going through gigantic stadium whoops? Yeah. It's very nearly impossible, and you need to have super, super, super smart people with shock valving and spring packs and bump rubbers and everything else to figure out how to make that work. Do you have bump springs on that car? We don't run bump springs. Okay. We run bump rubbers. Okay. And then one of the things that we did that was kind of a cool trick is because the car is set up with a cantilever, we created uh, it where it's got on the fly, like we can change it in 10 minutes in the pits, the motion ratio without changing ride height. Gotcha. So we can go up and down in total roll stiffness percentage in 10% increments without changing ride height just by throwing the car on the jacks, pull the wheels off, move some slugs around and put it back on the ground. Sweet. Which is huge because it allowed us to make changes on the fly yep. and really try to get good data on what is the sweet spot because mm-hmm. you have to get data to give to the guys that know how to read the data to figure <laughs> out what the right setups are. Right. So it, as a crew, it's our job to get as many different data points as we can throughout testing so that the engineering team can get together, crunch all the numbers, figure out what worked the best, and then put that package in the car and then go run the hill climb. Because the hill climb is its, its own animal. It is by far the most difficult thing we've ever tried to do. Awesome. What about you, Robert? How, how is it in the Porsche? Pretty mild. Pretty mild in the Porsche. Uh, it's they, almost like, you know, a team of engineers can, can yeah, solve this Yeah, it's almost like a huge team of professional engineers at a big company. You know, the guys right. that spent like $10 million developing that chassis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel it. The car hops over it, but it lands. It's smooth. And I'm on power before and after it. Really? I, I get wheel spin. You can see it in data, but... It's not a big deal in that car. Gotcha. I'd be worried about it in my Turbo S2000. Sure. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm just curious. So for me, I get like an initial hip, a little skip, and then my car's happy. Yep. Is that kind of where you're at? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, And I normally try to like look at the bump, know where it's at, and I'll pull a little bit of wheel out. Right. Go I, across it, put wheel back in, and get back to throttle. Just so that yeah. I try to like neutral the car out through it. Yeah, I kind of like aim down a little bit before it, so I'm a little straighter over it, and then start turning again after it. Yeah. And then after that, I'm l- looking at that outside wall and trying to not run into it. <laughs> and see, I've heard a few people say that they've had a little bit of like front end grip issues from the bump out, where they have a little bit of a push That's what in mine that does. section. Yep. And I haven't experienced the push at all. Like your front splitter's bigger than mine. Yeah. Well, and that's just it's kind of <laughs> interesting because. I don't know. You and I are kind of similar where we look at things kind of mm-hmm. from a data perspective. And it's interesting yep. to hear what other people's experiences are. And like me, I think I've been going through it too slow because I'm like matted after, after it, it and I'm not going up okay. to the wall. So I'm like, if I'm matted and I'm all done middle of the track, I'm like, I'm going way too slow through this thing. Like uh, way too slow. Gotta turn it up. Let's go. Yeah. No, that's tomorrow. I, that's why I was so bummed today because... I knew on my fast lap, I didn't use... You said you had traffic, too. Yeah, I did. A little bit? A little bit. And, but, you know, I, I'm terrible at names, but the, the dude with the Subaru, he was so cool. Like, he recognized that I was on a good lap, and he tried to get out of the way. But sometimes when you're 
you're out here and you know it's a time attack event nobody's getting like a pro racing contract so you don't want to be i don't want to ball somebody's car up sure and i don't want to ball my car up so i wanted to make sure that he knew i was there yep so i i hesitated because i didn't want to stuff him or have him feel like i was driving too aggressively so sure there was a little bit of that and then i know i left a bunch of time in that corner like that the traffic didn't bother me a bit the <laughs> fact that i was all done tracking out before mid-track yep and two was like you baby you didn't <laughs> go through there nearly fast enough that's i amazing. left so much time on the table and that was a hundred percent all my fault. Well, the like, time gap now between you and Ferris is what three seconds? Oh yeah, it's three seconds. Yeah, and it's a big he delta. He laid it down, and he laid down a great lap. And honestly, Ferris is fast, and he's got a lot more experience driving arrow and slicks than I do. But the only way that I'm going to get faster is going. Okay, you got to do it. Go freaking do it. I feel like my lap was pretty good. I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I don't think I'm going to be finding multiple seconds now. <laughs> What's your current time? Um, I don't know. What was yours? I have a 56.3. Okay, then I have a 56.7. Okay. I was, look, I was looking at GLTC times too much today. Yeah, I, I was think, like, what second are we on? I think I can run in the 54s. I think it's doable. Yep. I just need to go do it because I, I know that at that speed that we're going through the bank turn is right where I'm turning my arrow on. Yep. So, so you're like, crap, if I go faster, I'll have more grip. If I go faster, <laughs> I can go faster. <laughs> yeah, it's like, exactly. So I don't have that in the Porsche. I'm like at the limit through there, like just about feeling like I'm getting up toward the wall, struggling yeah. to get on throttle. And fortunately slash unfortunately, I am leaving just gobs of time on the table right there. And really? there, there is an, an in gigantic possibility that I'm leaving multiple seconds. So you said that yeah. you and Ferris are good buddies. Now he's three seconds ahead of you. Are you guys going to share data tonight so that you can see if you can catch up? He won't share data tonight, but we'll probably share data next week. Gotcha. Because he's putting his car in the trailer, and I think Ferris has told me for so long that I just don't have a chance to beat him ever, that this weekend when I was ahead of him yesterday, I think it stuck in his craw a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. And He's going to have to get used to it because I'm not going to stop. We're going to keep getting faster, and it's going to be a thing that we'll get there. So uh, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about something that you have a whole lot of experience with. Um, where can people find out more about your programs? Because you're both really active doing all kinds of stuff. Robert is uh, heading into the last event of the FD Prospect Championship just in a few days. Yep. So... Uh, if people want to follow along with that, where do they sure. find you? Uh, Thorn Throne is my handle on Instagram, and then Robert Thorn Racing on YouTube. Okay. What about you, Mike? So probably best to just check out the socials for the shop. It's Dussold Designs, and we're on Instagram and Facebook, and we also have YouTube. So we awesome. try to stay pretty active There's on that stuff. There's some entertaining videos of uh, you guys testing rockets earlier. <laughs> Trying to blow ourselves, to blow really? ourselves up. How did I miss those? Are they yeah. on YouTube well, or Patty on Instagram? Well, Patty that's sitting right there almost <laughs> got blown up with a rocket on video on YouTube. And so then it was like, okay, out. we're not going to do this for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to put this away. Patty doesn't have eyebrows. <laughs> Thank you both. Good luck for the rest of the weekend. And uh, I hope that we see you again very soon. Maybe, maybe we can see you both at Heartland. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be there. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thanks.
Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at Gridlife to say hello. Thank you.